Hey, what's up? You're listening to the podcast edition of The Cutting Room, the show where we talk to industry-leading marketing professionals about their content marketing philosophy, process, and pregame before they edit an article live. I am your host, Tommy Walker, and thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Pep Laya, the founder of Winter, CXL, and Spiro. And in our conversation today, we talk about why something being hard to create is your moat, how the definition of quality has changed over time, and how to spot BS content marketing. I hope you enjoy the show. Tell me a little bit about your content marketing philosophy and how it has evolved over time. Yeah, so I got serious about content marketing more than 10 years ago when I started my conversion optimization agency, today known as Spiro. And when if you're in the business of expertise, like people buy you because you know a lot about something, then content marketing plays an essential role, obvious truth, right? So from the get-go, I set for Conversion Excel back in the day, content strategy that was that every single post needs to be the best post ever written about this very specific narrow subject. So if we want to talk about how to run multivariate tests and why it needs to be the best post on this ever made. So that was the guiding post. So in the beginning, it was practitioner-led content, meaning I myself was writing some select practitioner guest posters. But then when I hired, to say, writers, and Tommy Walker was the first professional editor, writer for the Conversion Excel blog, then how do we scale these standards to non-subject matter experts? So Tommy is not a conversion optimization expert, yet the bar was the content needs to be the best in the world's level content about A-B testing, conversion optimization, things like that. So then we needed to get more specific about what are these guidelines? What makes a post the best in the world? And largely, we bucketed these into three types of rules. So some were SEO-based rules, rules about content length, because back in the day, there was like compelling data that Google favored articles that were like 2,000 words or more, and those articles got more backlinks and the better rankings. These days, this is less important, or now I hear even that Google de-ranks or blog posts over 2,000 words because nobody wants to read those, which is true. Then guidelines for readability. It needs to be well-structured, you know, like paragraphs and can't be a wall of text. And then the content, which is every claim you make needs to be backed up with a case study, example, scientific research, things like that. So whatever we're saying, everything is like factual and always featuring the best in the game experts. Then how do you weave those quotes into the story, balancing arguments from opposing sides, things like that. So that was the strategy that we chose in like 2011, more or less. And it was working basically right away, basically working right away. And CXL built its whole business on top of the blog using this content strategy. And since then, we've also taken the same approach. So CXL at some point split into Spiro, which is the agency, and CXL, which is the e-learning business. Both use the same basic content strategy and now uh, practicing the same at winter. So if you're in the business of building a new category, a movement, you have a point of view about stuff, this strategy, I think, works well. And you've been a lot into differentiation lately. Tell me about how you got from that point where the original idea was to be better than everybody else in the search. But now it's this idea of not just be better objectively, 
but also be completely different and unique. How's that come to be? Well, I think what has changed over the last 10 years is that a whole bunch of things got commoditized, not just products, services, and companies, but also content. Everybody and their mother jumped on the content marketing ship and started crafting excellent high-quality content. So when in 2011, with Conversion Excel, started to write high-quality content, long-form articles, we were one of the few blogs that did that. Most were writing 300-word opinion pieces. But now, today, you just can't write high-quality content anymore because everybody can write high-quality content, well-researched, lengthy pieces. That's not what makes you special anymore. So today, solely this strategy does not bear fruit. So what you also now need is you need something that makes your content different. It makes you stand out. So it could be personality. It could be uh, the format of how this content is presented. Uh, you know, if you look at like this guy's growth.design, but essentially it's content, but it's presented as a clickable case study. Nobody else does this. Totally unique stands out. Or if you look at like Harry, Harry Dry, right? Everybody's favorite guy, marketing examples, doing these. He has a unique format of communicating, right? So unique packaging is one thing, or you have a unique authoritative voice. You know, one of my favorite examples is if you look at the blog of Reforge, Reforge, Brian Fulfour and, and friends, they don't publish often, but every single piece is an article you want to bookmark. And the articles that they write cannot be replicated by any content writer. No content writer in the world can write Reforge style articles. And why is that? Because it's heavily based on real world experience. I've been work doing this for 20 years. This is my point of view. And I've maybe deduced it into a framework, a formula, where like a true subject matter expertise shows up, which is why you want to go to Reforge blog any day. Like every piece is gold. And at what point did you really start to get into this space, right? Like differentiation's always been the sort of the overarching theme, right? You always wanted to get to that point, but one mm -hmm it started to evolve to this was table stakes and everybody was doing this. And I was there when we were doing that and it was 1,850 words minimum, new image every three paragraphs, right? Like there were some mm -hmm. very, very tough standards there. That was what the differentiation was at that point. Mm -hmm. When you were looking at the evolution of what was going on, when was that no longer enough in your mind? Like, and what was the research process, I suppose, that looked like started going into that? because how to do it, how to differentiate. There's a lot more in it than just having good ideas. Totally. And I got interested in differentiation, not for content reasons, but for like business differentiation reasons, because I was wrestling this very common business problem of, is my business sufficiently differentiated? Like running a CRO agency, like, okay, we're like, we do really great work. But if you look at like the services we offer and so on, so many companies offering the very same thing. So I was like, okay, so differentiation maybe in this case is not about what we do, because anybody can say that they also do this, but it's like how you do it. And it's the personality. I mean, a lot of people came to our agency because of me, because I had built like a name, a following, people trusted me. And so I was like, wow, these subjective things, like a visible founder that maybe some people like, can be a reason why people choose you, which is the core of differentiation. 
point of differentiation, why I turn to you over all these other people, sources, companies, right? And well, I was solving differentiation problems at the business level for the agency, for CXL, the e-learning business, and constantly thinking about it. And then I, I was buying, buying heaps of books on differentiation, also learning that there are actually very few available, and uh, at least very few good ones. And I really got into the subject myself. And then at the same time, this is about, let's say, 2018, 2020, that time range, when I noticed like we had been running the same, let's say, content playbook for almost 10 years, like seven years. And we started noticing that our, even like on SEO-wise, our traffic was flat. We weren't growing as fast as we used to. When asking people, hey, what are your favorite blogs then? What do you like to read? And so on. We started to come up less often. And that's, you know, you always want to be somebody's favorite blog, right? Or favorite whatever media channel. There's a huge value in there being like named. If somebody asks a recommendation, that your name comes up. And we were being, and by we, I mean the CXO blog was uh, represented less and less. And that was like, we've become less relevant. And why is that? Because we've been running this playbook that is less relevant. It's outdated. And why people run outdated playbooks? Because it used to work like gangbusters. And then you want to ride on the success and you, you don't want to break the boat that's working, right? So that was kind of how we got into the, or how I got into this differentiation thing. Tell me a little bit more about the podcast, because this is one of those situations where you could have done a podcast years ago. And the mm. premise of how to win is a little bit different than what's out there, especially in the it's very easy to get into an interview style conversation totally. and have the same conversations over and over again. Tell me about what that process looked like for you mm. doing the research to create a podcast, a format that's very common, doubly common with interviews, what did that look like to do something that was different than what everybody else was doing? Basic principle behind anything in marketing, in business, doesn't matter, in life, is that what's easy to do, a lot of people will do. If the barrier of entry is low, like it doesn't require much effort, there's a lot of noise, a lot of competition. So I wanted to do a podcast for years. What held me back was not that I didn't believe in podcasting. Sure, I did. I just didn't want to do yet another podcast that has the very same guests that everybody else has, which is like 99% of podcasts. And it's just interview style and it's very chatty. Like people maybe have inside jokes. As a podcast listener, I just, I can't stand this podcast to talk about nothing. And I wanted to do a podcast. It needs to be different. So, so many podcasts is pure filler, right? Because there's no editor. There's no editor that, comes in and cuts 30% of what you talked about, right? Because they publish the whole thing because that's the easy thing to do. So number one, it's like, okay, I'm going to have an editor and we're going to cut most of it. And second thing is like, well, also I want to communicate my point of view and so on and so forth. And so I formulated actually three concepts for what the podcast might be like, three formats. And what I wasn't sure about was A, what people will enjoy listening to and B, what I enjoy creating, because, you know, if you get into a podcast, zero business impact after episode four, right? Like, I mean, you need to stay in this game for the longest time and you need to enjoy the process yourself. It needs to, you know, it needs to be sustainable. And so I recorded some, I want to say 10 episodes of podcasts that are never used, trying out different formats. I have high profile guests. These episodes have never been published because I came to the conclusion this format is not working. It's not working for me. The audience is kind of like, eh, 
And then I stumbled upon this, well, not didn't stumble, this was my hypothesis for one format is that I profile a company's growth story from inception to today through the perspective of strategy, which not a lot of companies are talking about, and also being intrinsically interested in it. Because I'm interested in strategy, and I'm also a practitioner, I have a lot of thoughts on my own. So if you're just interviewing guests, it's like you're just a reporter and everybody else is the smart guy. I also want the podcast to uplift me, right? That's why the key reason why I do the podcast. And so I came to this format where I add commentary and my own thoughts on top of narration. I record a one-hour episode with a guest. I cut 30 minutes of conversation. Whenever I ask them a question, I also cut my questions. And out of their answers, I cut like most of what they said and just leave in the juicy bits. So there's a lot of editing that goes on. Uh, yeah, now it's differentiated. And if you look at the qualitative attribution, if people ask, hey, what are your favorite marketing business podcasts? How to Win keeps on coming up more and more often. So almost an answer to what was going on over at CXO once it started to plateau. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show and the way that we do this show, because like you don't get the behind the scenes thinking on a lot of where these people are coming from. What the common thread is between this and CXO is the editing, right? The premise is unique, but it's the editing. If you're cutting out 30 minutes of your conversation, only leaving the juicy bits and giving your commentary, it's just a little extra step that makes it so way more valuable to the listener. So let's use the podcast as an example. Let's talk about your pregame into the editing process. With my editor, we've agreed upon certain principles because I think editing needs to be principles-based. Otherwise, you can't micromanage all these possible scenarios and things that come up. So a principle might be no greetings, no back and forth, haha banter, no like relationship building conversation. All of that cut out. So whenever the editor sends me a pre-edited file and I further cut another 30%, then they've cut out all this like, where I say, hey, how's it going, man? Yeah, nice thing. You're like, none of that. Or hello, thanks for being my guest. It's my pleasure to have you on the show. Nobody wants to hear that shit, right? It's all being cut out. Second thing is, is like, the content needs to be something that people can follow. So often guests just plug themselves, right? Because talking about their company, obviously they say, oh, my best, my great talent and so good people and like we're changing the world and helping the people. That's nice, but it's uninteresting. We're cutting all of that stuff. So another principle is like we cut everything that is self-congratulatory, self-posting. Some of it is there was true like revenue growth and what they did. Whatever is just doesn't seem to be valuable or uh, like replicable, we just cut. And then I get it. And then while I'm interviewing, the guests. I'm making mental notes where, ooh, this is really interesting what you said. Wow, that's a great observation. Whereas sometimes I'm like, the person is telling me something, I'm like, this is fucking boring. I'm definitely not going to feature this in the show. I already know during the conversation. Also, sometimes, and you don't know this in advance, the guest has nothing interesting to offer. So the premise of my podcast is like, you got this company above $10 million in revenue, which is no easy feat. How did you do it? What did you do? What was special? Sometimes the guest is, no fucking idea. We think we have a blog and yeah. you know. And then I'm like, well, this guy is clueless. And I asked the question, is it luck or is it like strategy? And sometimes it's pure fucking luck, man. It's because like you're delivering a service with a lot of demand, right? And so you being there at the right time 
which is also part of life, is huge. And then what do I do with this episode? I don't publish them at all. And a lot of people publish every episode because I recorded it, right? It was hard to get that guest on my show. And so being aware of some cost fallacy, oh yeah, of course I want to publish it because I put in the work, but it's not good enough. My standard is here. And obviously still not all the episodes are better than others. It's inevitable, I think. Or it's not inevitable. Actually, I think I would make a claim that if I would up my editorial standards even further, if I would want to put up even more effort, I could have every episode be killer. That comes with a cost, right? Every time you push the standards, there's a cost. There's a time cost. There might be a monetary cost. Podcast is not making money for me, right? Other things in my life are making money. So there's a limit to how much time I can put in and justify putting in. So my standards are good enough, but could be bad. I think that's something that's really important, too, is that knowing that threshold at the end of the day, it's it's your brand, right? You're the host and everything that you're doing represents what you're trying to accomplish here. A question in here where it says, how have you managed the expectation of your guests so they don't have issues when their thoughts are cut? I'll just say like a lot of this will be edited in post-production. The people that I feature on my show is not the first reality. I only feature founders and CEOs who do a lot of presentations, you know, webinars, conference talks, they don't give a shit. You got to bring people on who have that understanding just in general that this isn't going to make it. I know that with certain articles, I've told people before, I can't do this. Earlier in my career, especially when you and I were working together, the schedule was really important to me sometimes to the point where I'd re-edit entire pieces because the kernel of the idea was good, but the writing itself was not. And I think that there's also just to add to that, because, you know, we're saying keep standards high, right? We have that in the chat because people leaving people out of boredom doesn't come back. I think it's important to keep in mind what's worth putting the extra effort into. That's always up to whatever the time is worth. What are some of the most important unbreakable rules in your internal writing guidelines for authors that help CXL and Winter create such amazing content? That's a question from Nikita. The key thing is like, is it actually really fucking good? All right. So in CXL guidelines, it still says you're writing the best article ever written on this particular topic. All right. So it's a mindset thing. So if that is the expectation that I need to deliver, like you gotta try harder. You're gonna you're gonna try to do a better job. I have personally written for external publications where they also communicated to me, you know, like high standards, or I had tremendous respect for these outlets myself. Like, um, and then I just gave my all, and like I was really proud of my output. Now that I look back at the article, I'm like, <laughs> my standards are risen still. But back in the day, it's it, like I gave it all, and yeah. You know. As an editor, you have to understand what the best on the subject means. I think it's really easy to say, I want the best on the subject. Yeah. But I think it's really difficult to also put in the mental work to do it. I mean, it's like you said, if it were easy, everybody would do it, right? Totally. A lot of people are not ready to put in the effort. It, it takes right. a lot of effort. Right? Yeah. And you remember, uh, Stephen King has written this book, I think it's called On Writing, you know, and he's like published 70 books or something like he's one of the most prolific writers of all time. And his basic premise is like, to be a good writer, you need to also be a good reader. You need to read a lot. Mm-hmm. So in order to know whether a piece is the best in the world quality, and this is like different than everybody's line, whatever that means, you need to know what that looks like. 
you know, like if I read it, like, hey, if I'm a subject matter expert, I know if it's vague bullshit or it's like, yeah, good shit. Or also I need to read external content, not something that I haven't published to know, wow, look at these guys. These guys are writing some good stuff. Like one example that comes to mind is like first round, the VC firm, they have like blog, SaaS ventures stuff. I'm like, holy shit, that's good shit. Like I'm looking at it and then you see what good looks like or talking about the Reforge blog. So you need to be a good reader to know what content is out there to know that it's good. And also, you also need to know what is bullshit content that a lot of people think is good content. So if I have a writer and I always, when I interview them, it's like, hey, who do you think is doing a really good job? And maybe it was also a smaller brand, not like, you know, billion dollar brand. Like doesn't apply if they have unlimited budget. You need to have certain standards and certain savviness to know that it's all bullshit. And like, it sounds like, oh, yeah, it's very thorough and all that stuff, but it's crap, right? And so if you can't tell the difference, you just, you're not ready to write for me. When I do an audit now, I tell the people that I work with, like, my primary job here is to read 200 of your articles, if you have 200 articles, and then read as many pieces within your industry and then adjacent to all of that, because you have to know and understand what's going on in the space. If you want to find those places where you can jab and say things that nobody else is saying, so you can open them up when you do have to go toe to toe, because you're always going to have to. But like, how are you going to do that and make it different and build that trust and narrative over time? Uh, We got two questions here, and then we're going to jump into the article. And the reason I picked this article for you is because it's sort of the inverse of what we're talking about here. I did that very much on purpose and especially with a subject that you know a lot about. Someone says, do you have a particular process for vetting and testing writers' skills before working with them, especially freelancers? Absolutely. I mean, the main thing is like I say, I tell them, send me the best article you have ever written about this broad subject or like top two. And if they send me, here's 50 links. I say, no, no, no. I'm not going to read fucking 50 pieces. Send me the best. Quite often they just say, actually, nothing is actually very good. Or they send me their link and I'm like, no, please. There's just no way I'm going to work with you because it's just crap. And people, oh, well, it's what the customer wanted. Okay, fine. Sure. But write your own fucking article, right? Like write something for a portfolio. Write something that you're proud of. And then I show, I give them a link to an article that I have written that I think is good. Let's say, Can you write a piece like this? 90% of people are like, no, I'm not ready to put in that kind of work. So that's one thing. So let's say that I look at the article, like, ah, this is promising. They might be able to write. Then, you know, it's the standard thing. Pitch me an outline or, and then send me a draft. And then I look at the draft. And I mean, I guess I can go into the piece when we start looking at the editing portion. Yeah, I've stolen a lot of that from you. That was one of the major things when I started hiring people is I said, give me your three best articles. And then I would go into a deep edit with one of them, knowing there were no stakes in the game for the person who would do it, because I wanted to also understand how it was that they would respond to my edits, because there are two parts to that, right? One, are you any good? And then two, can you take feedback? People who couldn't take the feedback, especially when there was no risk, you clearly don't want to push yourself a little bit further because I'm going to push you. Exactly. Yeah. We have one more question here and then we're going to jump into the edit, which is how important is the amount of time given to the authors and how do you communicate timeframes? I've got some ideas on this too. So I think it varies based on what is my relationship with these people. If it's my in-house writer, 
I have a set cadence because like without cadence is like if they write two articles a year, is that good? Is that, did they earn their salary? I don't think so. So there needs to be cadence. If it's agency that is using an outsourced writing content agency, right? Then there's also a set deliverable. I'm paying a certain monthly fee in exchange for a certain number of articles. Maybe it's you know four a month or eight a month or whatever it is. So then the cadence matters. If it's just a random freelancer that chips into my process and say, hey, I also want to write an article. I don't give a shit about the deadlines, personally. Like, I don't care because my main cadence is going. I have an agency or in-house writer or writers who are responsible for cadence. And then like, whenever you get to it, I don't care. I pay you when it's done. Right. Most of my teams have always been freelance authors. And the cadence is important. And when it comes to the quality, there's this give and take. For me, it always comes down to passion, right? Are you willing to put the work in to also try to get the highest quality pieces possible out in the time frame that I give you, right? And it might be, you know, a week, two weeks, depends on what the cadence of the mm-hmm. overall publication is going to be. But like when we were working together, it was two posts every week, every Tuesday and Thursday, and they had to be the highest quality possible. And if that meant as an editor, I was spending extra time on a Monday, like, putting what I had into it, I would also expect that from the author on the other side of the equation. And from what I've found is that when you care, somebody else cares. And it's really easy to sleepwalk through all of this and be more beholden to the cadence than the quality. And you have to pay attention to both. You have to care deeply about both because then your writing is going to be much better every single time because you're trying to make it so that first draft is going to be the thing that gets accepted. Let's jump into the piece. And that's it for the podcast edition of The Cutting Room. If you'd like to watch while Pep edits live, click on the link in the show notes and you'll be brought directly to the edit on our YouTube channel. And if you'd like to be notified about the next live edit, please go to thecontentstudio.com forward slash The Cutting Room or click on the link in the show notes. Thank you again and we'll see you in the next one.